and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Bastos, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this interregnum between Christmas and the New Year to look back on the major stories we covered in 2022 and how they evolved, focusing on Russia's war on Ukraine. We begin with a broadcast of background briefing from March the 13th, 2022, when we spoke with a Moscow-based defense analyst on how the Ukrainians are winning so far at a time when most pundits and military analysts in the US and Europe were assuming a quick Russian victory in a war that started on February the 24th. We went to Moscow to speak with Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a Moscow-based defense analyst, columnist and journalist who previously served as senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences. From 1994 to 2005, Felgenhauer published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta. Felgenhauer's regular commentary used to appear in many other local and international publications, but is now shut down due to censorship. We discuss how the military landscape in Ukraine looks from the Russian perspective and how the Ukrainians are not just holding their own, but are likely to do better as the war drags on into the fall when Pavel predicts there will still be a Ukrainian army fighting and not just a guerrilla force. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from December the 4th of 2022, and you've been listening to a retrospective of Background Briefing's 2022 programs on our coverage of Russia's war on Ukraine. And we'll be back on New Year's Day with a new original program as we wish you all a happy new year. And before we begin, as the end of the year approaches, when folks make their charitable donations, I hope our listeners and donors think of background briefing and reward our determination to keep this program free of commercial advertising, corporate underwriting, and not to mention paywalls. So if you're so inclined, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to our tax-exempt nonprofit foundation, publictruthmedia.org, where your donations, large and small, will enable us to keep offering background briefing free to the public. And I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays. And joining us now from Moscow is Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and from 1994 to 2005 published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times, and in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta, and he does regular commentary on Russia which appears in many other local and international publications. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer. Hi. Well, nice thanks, for, thanks for joining us, uh, Pavel. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you're not publishing anything more now, are you, in the Vague Gazette or anywhere else? I believe. Uh, well, I had a piece just several hours before the war was declared, and then afterwards, while well, the newspaper more or less ceased to comment on the war because of the very strict draconian rules of censorship right now in Russia. Uh, that would most likely mean either lying or uh, being closed down. So right now they're kind of withholding a bit comment. And I'm withholding comment in Russian, though I do speak to Western, Eastern, and Middle Eastern and TV networks give other comments, but 
try not to write down anything much so that it's uh, well, they would not have a case, I mean, of me spreading so-called uh, fakes, as they call them. Well, but anyways, but you, I'm, I, that's how the situation sort of is. Sure, but you couldn't even use the word war, could you, or invasion? In Russia, no, you should call it an operation. I see. <laughs> so, so how is the operation going? From your vantage point in uh, well, Moscow. Well, it's uh, clearly not going good, though. The official line coming from the Kremlin and the MOD is that it's kind of everything's on track, everything's on plan. Well, what else could they say? Because uh, right now they're not saying that it's a total disaster, which actually it most likely is. Uh, objectively, the speaking, the Russian advance has ground almost to a halt. Russia still has more some of the initiative, but the advance is already kind of caterpillar speed of um, several meters, maybe one half a kilometer a day. And Ukraine is a big country, so it's uh, more or less uh, stopped. Now the scales are kind of moving towards the balance. The Russia still has the advantage, the upper hand, in having much more heavy weaponry, uh, more jets, long-range, different kind of missiles that can reach deep into Ukraine. Ukraine can't really fire back effectively against Russia. They did, in the very beginning, fire a short-range ballistic missile or two at a Russian airbase close to the border, but and destroyed apparently a couple of jets, but that's more or less all they could do. Uh, but still, on the but uh, the Russian advance has run into a number of uh, serious problems. Uh, on, uh, I believe mostly because it was very poorly planned, and uh, so the Russians kind of attacked not in a concentrated way to concentrate their blows. In most cases, uh, but no, uh, but in kind of different directions and different parts, uh, they're not really connected with each other. While the Ukrainians can use operational lines to move reserves around, and in the West, as the Pentagon expected, that the Ukrainian organized resistance is going to collapse very soon, in two three days. That's what the Pentagon said before. In three days, Kiev will fall. The organized resistance would collapse. Ukrainians would resist, but that would be a kind of guerrilla campaign. Well, they are not. In a guerrilla campaign, they still have their chain of command intact. They have uh, their military staffs working. They're fighting like an organized military force, performing right now a mobilization uh, and moving forces and uh, moving uh, men and receiving equipment from the West and augmenting res reserve formations, uh, volunteer formations with the regular formations, which of course will take some time. And uh, well, the Russians, which uh, threw more or less their regular standing army, and it was a big one, it is a big one, they threw it in, all in. Uh, they don't have much reserves right now left. There are, of course, other Russian military units that are not involved in this campaign, but there are not so much of them in the army. 
left, and there are places where you can't remove them, like in the Kaliningrad Amkhlif, or I don't know, in the Kuril Islands, or in Tajikistan, or in uh, uh, the Karabakh, or some places where you can't actually pull out much. So they're scrapping kind of the uh, barrel to get something more into the field, and uh, since they don't have enough reserves, that's why actually their advance ground to a halt. A lack of immediately available reserves to uh, throw in and uh, overwhelm the, the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians are kind of getting stronger. The Russians are in the same, are getting weaker. Uh, but this is a long process. It's not that it's going to, the tide of war is changing anytime soon. It's going to be a very bloody and gradual process. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, who is in Moscow, where he's a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences from 1994 to 2005. He published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Nevaeh Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many other local and international publications. And we're already in day 18. Does that mean, uh, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, that, uh, that Putin's going to pressure Belarus to enter the battle if, they, if he's out of reserves? Well, that would be a bit of a problem. The standing Belarusian forces are minuscule, about 10,000 men all in all. Mm-hmm. Very small. Belarus has a very small defense budget, two and a half times less than that of Estonia. Um, Lukashenko never spent much money on his military, didn't believe that's necessary. He spent his money on his special police kind of uh, units and KGB. Those keep him in power. Uh, So for for them to move anything, uh, they have uh, uh, five army brigades ready for action, two heavy and three brigades light. The light brigades are less than 2,000 each. These are airborne special forces and air attack brigades, but they're small. They won't change anything on the field. Uh, For them to do something on the field changeable, they have to mobilize reservists. In In Belarus, they have reservists. I mean, they have been called up and trained. That's how the system was. I mean, that they spend little money, but would expand in in an attack. They would, like, you know, the Swiss or the Israelis, they would bring in reservists. But there's a problem that reservists most likely will not want to go to fight fight the Ukrainians. They could, if you begin to call them up and give them arms, they could turn their weapons against the regime itself. Uh, So that's a very tricky issue. And of course, you need the Belarusians to kind of most mostly maybe sit put and uh, to see that there's uh, uh, to kind of balance the Polish armed forces, which are a very formidable army. The Poles have a standing army of four heavy divisions ready for action. They're not on the Belarusian border, but could swiftly move. They are there. Poland is not very, that a big country geographically. Uh, so you can't actually move everything out of Belarus. That's also not an option. So yes, that's why the Russian, uh, I mean, the defense minister says we'll bring a, a 15,000 or, I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 uh, uh, Syrian fighters. And, and Putin says, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, that's a sign of rather desperation that they're run, they have a, 
manpower issue. Uh, well, the Ukrainians have other issues, but not manpower. And I believe that uh, I say it will take time for the Ukrainians to complete their mobilization of reservists and volunteers, augment them with the, the uh, with the regular army, arm them with also with weapons that they're getting from the West, with uniforms, boots, I don't know, helmets, uh, body armor, also coming from the West. And uh, then, kind of, they'll be ready to have for action. I don't think now, nowhere we're than April. So in April, uh, maybe May, we could see serious Ukrainian counteroffensive action against the Russians. Uh, hardly earlier than that, but uh, then the situation could begin to change, though gradually. Uh, Ukrainians may achieve some kind of victories. Well, they'll be most likely looking, you know, for some kind of a Bunker Hill, Lexington thing, or maybe Saratoga, if you look at the American War of Independence. Somewhere they can kind of defeat the Russians and seem to be defeating them, taking prisoners and so on. Uh, that could happen already in May and in the summer. Uh, by uh, the next fall, in, in half a year's time, I think Russia is going to run into serious uh, problems, very serious problems. Uh, the, the war may conti continue to drag on and not be very successful. Uh, the Russian economy is going to absolutely tank under um, financially and economically. Everything is going to tank because uh, there's uh, because of the very severe uh, sanctions. There will be mass unemployment, uh, decline, a serious decline of living standards. And all this put together could mean a very serious internal political problem for the regime somewhere there. So, of course, right now is to strike a deal with uh, the Ukrainians on a ceasefire and withdraw, withdraw the troops, announce, announce victory, declare victory, that the objectives of the uh, military campaign are achieved, the Ukraine uh, says it's not going to go into NATO, and return basically the troops to the antebellum, to the, to the positions of uh, February 23. Uh, Moscow, of course, also wants Ukraine to recognize the annexation of Crimea, the independence of the uh, these uh, Donetsk republics, they won't do that. And I would not, most likely not, not done that too. The best way for Russia to avoid the war of attrition is to, uh, right now, declare victory and withdraw. Because a war of attrition between Russia and the entire mankind, or at least the, entire, the very united West, is a war Russia can never win. So do you think Putin knows that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this guy's been in the Kremlin for already 22 years, I mean, ruling Russia. It's hard to comprehend what he thinks. Mm. I mean, you, you, many people in that being so long in power get, you know, even those who were very smart rulers, after 22 years, maybe not that smart. I don't know. Right now, he doesn't show signs that he's ready to call it a day, accept defeat, a partial defeat, and withdraw. Because, of course, he knows it won't be easy and the, all the sanctions won't go away. 
But he, if I would be in his place, I'd negotiate some kind of deal. Because, again, the alternative is a war of attrition with the West. The Ukrainians are going to mobilize and mobilize and mobilize. They have lots of volunteers. There will be volunteers coming from the West, specialists, actually, maybe even uh, flag officers and officers with, with experience to work as advisors or commanders like the Poles and the French fought in the American War of Independence, uh, because uh, Ukrainians have enough manpower and expertise and use and uh, commanders who know how know, know how to use modern warfare. The Americans uh, will provide them increasingly with uh, uh, intelligence information. As right now, it became clear no one knew that beforehand. No one knew how many Russian spies and traitors uh, Russia planted into Ukrainian military and to their top command, too. And now the Ukrainian generals are legit. They are not traitors. They're fighting. That means the United States would be ready to share with them uh, raw intel online. And the United States has the best intel gathering uh, uh, capabilities in the world, including targeting information coming from satellites, coming from planes, drones. I mean, uh, uh, NATO AVAXs are just simply hanging over Poland on the border and looking deep into the conflict zone. So they can supply uh, the Ukrainians much better targeting information than Russia can master. So there are many things that are going to go wrong with Russia. I mean, the Ukrainian, of course, economy is also a basket case. Uh, but that doesn't really matter for the war effort because Ukraine will be given money, uh, goods, humanitarian aid in, in quantities enough that they can w- fight the war effort and not go bankrupt, where Russia may not have those resources. Uh, so a war of attrition is a war Russia can't win in Ukraine. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, uh, if it goes on into May and then uh, into the fall of the guerrilla campaign, in May and it's April... Not be, it, uh, uh, sorry, it won't be a guerrilla campaign. It's still a very much so, chain of command. It's an, it's an, okay. uh, an army fighting an army. Okay, so... It's not guerrilla. Sure, but in the short term, the spring means lots of mud, which will slow down the armor. And what do you know about morale within the ranks of the Russian military? Well, morale, of course, is most likely not very high, but it's not that the Russian armed forces are falling apart. They're good Russian soldiers. They are being ordered. They're fighting. There was, in the end of the, um, February, a thaw, very warm February, and there were problems with this so-called column uh, advancing on Kiev, and actually it was stuck in the mud. Uh, but then there was a, a, a wind coming in from the North Pole, and there was a spell of cold weather in Russia and in Ukraine, and this calm actually dispersed, as it should have, into the woods and the fields to organize a more regular uh, siege of Kiev. Uh, but that wind, the weather is going to be, the spring is coming, and that means there's going to be another pause, at least in uh, maneuverable swift warfare. Uh, not in all parts of Ukraine, but around Kiev, most likely, yes, maybe in other parts of the north. And that, again, is an advantage to the Ukraine because time is not working on the Russians, and the Ukrainians need time. They, they, they have already those uh, reservists and volunteers around. 
augmented into the regular military. They'll need time to prepare to uh, uh, get those forces actually fighting. And in uh, the process, they'll learn to fight. And better to do that when you're more or less not moving a lot around when you're sitting in sitting position. Before They're not yet ready for a real big successful counteroffensive because that's most likely what the Ukrainian general staff is right now thinking about. It's time for them to counteroffense. And if they're successful, that will change Ukrainian international standing and also mean that much more Ukrainians are going to also volunteer to do the fight, will raise their morale. Their morale is not bad, but the, Russia, the Russians are also not falling apart. So it's a kind of uh, stalemate of sorts. Though, uh, with the Russians yet still having a bit of an upper hand, but this is not, not very much, not, uh, just a bit. Well, Dr. Pavel Fagenhauer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speak with Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, who is in Moscow, where he's a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences from 1994 to 2005. He published a regular column on defense in the English language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Falkenhauer joined the staff of Nevea Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many other local and international publications. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from March the 13th of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with another Background Briefing from September the 12th of 2022. will never return, never return our love. One soldier, soldier, what you gonna do? When you walk with soldiers, when your mother's heart, soldier, soldier, what you gonna do? When your war is over, who will wait for you? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're now going to a broadcast from September the 12th of 2022 about Ukraine's successful counteroffensive and pressure on Putin to take more desperate measures. We began with a successful counteroffensive underway by the Ukrainian military in the northeast around Kharkiv that had routed the Russian invaders and provoked unusually harsh criticism from nationalists and military bloggers inside of Russia who the regime has so far tolerated. Joining us was Michael Weiss, news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He is the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponized Information, Culture and Money, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. We discuss calls from municipal figures in St. Petersburg and Moscow for Putin to step down, and whether pressure from the nationalists on Putin might result in him seeking more desperate military measures as his so-called special operation appears poised to collapse. 
And joining us now is Michael Weiss, the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Weiss. Thank you, Ian. Happy to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the Ukrainian counteroffensive recapturing Kharkiv and a lot of the area in the north there, right up to the Russian border, has really got certainly the mill bloggers in Russia in a bit of a lather. It seems that even on the mainstream television propaganda channels, state TV, they're at least sort of not crowing about ludicrous and unrealistic victories, but rather somberly mentioning that they have some reversals. And then you've got municipal figures in both Moscow and St. Petersburg calling for Putin's resignation. So what are we to make of all of this? Well, I think it's a pretty calamitous setback for the Russian president and for the war aims at large. Um, his military, judging from reporting that's coming out now in the Washington Post, um, I mean, you mentioned Telegram and even pro-Russian military commentators who've been pretty unvarnished in their appraisal that this is a rout. Uh, and there's no way to dress it up. The Ministry of Defense in Moscow is portraying it as a regrouping of forces to fortify Donetsk, but nobody believes that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. Um, and the, I think the most extraordinary aspect of it is that nobody really saw this coming. For, for many months, Ukraine has been telegraphing a big counteroffensive to retake the southern area or oblast of Kherson. Kherson city was the first major population center to fall to the Russians in late February, early March. Strategically, uh, the southern areas tend to be more commercially viable for Ukraine and important. I mean, a lot of grain uh, is exported from these port cities. Um, and so, yeah, we, we were all looking south when Ukraine was quietly moving forces to the northeast. Uh, and it doesn't even seem like it was that many troops. I, I haven't been able to get it credible figures on this yet. But, you know, the the anecdotal evidence that's emerging is that, you know, you had as little as, as sort of a single company in some instances just pushing through, um, which suggests not heavy engagement, um, but rather that the Russians just turned tail and, and ran away. Um, I mean, there's a piece I just read in the Washington Post today suggesting that uh, in one village in Kharkiv, uh, you know, the soldiers stripped off their uniforms they held villagers at gunpoint saying, give me your, the keys to your car. Uh, they dressed up as civilians and just hightailed it back over the border to avoid uh, reconnaissance surveillance where they might then be bombed. Um, they were terrified of what the Ukrainians were doing. And, and this, this didn't happen. You know, uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman, the dean of British strategic studies, had a very good piece on this, um, quoting Ernest Hemingway, you know, how do you go bankrupt gradually and then all of a sudden, right? I mean, war works in a similar manner in that the Ukrainians have been kind of conducting these shaping exercises all along the contact line. You know, ever since they received the HIMARS um, NATO standard U.S. provided uh, artillery systems, they've really just been punishing 
Russian supply lines, ammunition depots, fuel depots, command centers, all along that line of contact and, and in places where they simply could not have access before, given the range of these systems. So I think that what, what this ended up doing I mean, it's all of a piece, right? You know, the, the messaging that Kherson is the big juicy target forced the Russians to move some 30,000 troops from other points along the contact line down to the south, thus making their northeastern flank more vulnerable. The Ukrainians then just pressed in and it was like a hot knife through butter. I mean, some estimates are, and this is not confirmed, I think on the more conservative side, you're seeing 2,500 square kilometers have been retaken. That's an area that's larger than the combined areas of the cities of New York and Los Angeles. Um, but I've seen higher order estimates suggesting as many as 9,000 square kilometers have been recaptured. I mean, it's hard to gauge because, you know, what do you consider a, a recapture if the Russians have withdrawn completely, uh, but the Ukrainians have yet to occupy? Uh, does that count? Or is it only the places where you can see the blue and gold standard being hoisted atop administrative buildings, which is probably a smaller uh, piece of the pie? But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Russians themselves have acknowledged in their own rather cack-handed and duplicitous manner that they've been defeated. Uh, Putin, according to the Moscow Times, is holed up in his resort complex in Sochi. Um, he had a meeting of the Security Council on Friday, uh, essentially forcing his Siloviki strongmen advisors to all share in the culpability of this failure uh, to agree to a complete withdrawal from Kharkiv, again, under the pretext of fortifying Donetsk. But even areas in Donetsk are now in play. Uh, Denis Pushilin, who's the commander of uh, the so-called People's Republic of Donetsk, so the you know eight-year-old, nine-year-old occupied proxy army. Um, he, he recorded a, a, a video in a getaway car fleeing from, um, we don't even know where he was, but essentially talking about Lyman um, being in a, quote, difficult spot. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Ukrainians have brought the pain all all along that, that front line. Um, and they're very, very bullish now about what they're going to continue to do, which is also actually now have that Kherson counteroffensive materialize in a significant manner. Well, apparently the Russians have been abandoning weapons and running and, yeah. and also abandoning tanks. But Putin uh, did open up a, <laughs> a big Ferris wheel in, I think it was on Saturday, was it on Sunday, mm. uh, in Moscow? And then it got stuck. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah, how's that for symbolism? It, it it broke down on its opening day. I see. Well, there you have it. So, if you want uh, even more symbolism than that, I mean, the the best map I've seen of what Ukraine has recaptured. If if you look at the sort of uh, horseshoe or or half crescent um, in in the east of the country, it now looks like a broken sickle. So make well, that symbolic in a half. Yeah, isn't exactly. it? And again, I'm speaking with Michael Weiss, the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And is the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money, and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. So, But Putin has always portrayed himself as a winner, and he's trying to gloss over this reversal, shall we say. Do you think that there has, has been a real change there? In other words, the, 
you know, his reputation as a winner and being a kind of political Houdini has caught up with him. You know, not dissimilar, I guess, to Donald Trump. I think, you know, I would phrase this or couch this a little bit differently. I think the West for a long time has allowed Putin to portray himself as a strategic mastermind, as, as a sort of, um, you know, almost a his own Rasputin-like figure in a way, uh, simply because he hasn't really been challenged or contested in a meaningful manner. I mean, you know, when when he authorized this stealth invasion annexation of Crimea, you know, Ukraine's army was not in, not in a fit state. Its security services were completely penetrated by Russian intelligence operatives. And, you know, the outgoing president was essentially an agent of Moscow. Uh, and this caught the West deeply by surprise. And really the only arrows in the quiver at, the, at that point were sanctions. And you also had an administration that was very uh, skittish about providing security assistance to Ukraine for fear of um, what this might do uh, in terms of escalation and how it might provoke the Russians. And yet what we've seen time and time again is all of the fears, all of the anxieties that are propounded about what happens if we poke the bear turn out to be a little bit overblown. So, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when giving uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine was going to start World War III. Well, now we're giving them HIMARS, we're giving them NASAM air defense systems, we're giving them Excalibur artillery, we're giving them essentially everything they've been asking for for 10 years, with the exception of F-16 fighter jets, but we'll eventually give them those too. I mean, that program is now in the offing for the long term. Um, and World War III has not arrived. Now, that's not to discount, you know, well-founded or, or well-grounded, I should say, claims that, you know, Putin could really lose his mind and decide to deploy tactical nukes and do, you know, everybody has to worst case scenario it. But the data thus far, if we're looking at this empirically, suggests the more that Russia is contested, the more that it is, its bluffs are called, the weaker and weaker it becomes. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't like overselling America's role in this, because at the end of the day, the Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting. This is their victory. But I think there's a lot that's happened in the last six months, seven months now, uh, in terms of American aid, security assistance, and frankly, just covert operations that we don't know about, and we won't know about for a spell. And I think that is predicated on the president of the United States, himself being an old cold warrior, himself being deeply wedded to the idea of Europe whole and free. And he's a, he's a fundamentally a transatlanticist in his foreign policy doctrine. And he basically decided enough was enough. And I, th I think indeed, you know, this last week is a return on investment. I don't think the Ukrainians could have managed this, or at least I, I don't think they could have managed the ability to do this without the security assistance coming from the West, the United States and the UK in particular. But beyond security assistance, uh, isn't there intelligence and military assistance? Yeah. And how much does that backfire in the sense that the Russian narrative now on state TV is that we're having these military reversals on this special military operation because we're fighting NATO and the Americans who are supplying weapons. And they that, keep saying they're Americans in yeah, the field. Yeah, And I mean, it, it, for years, they've been couching this conflict as not one between themselves and Ukraine, but themselves and America and NATO. 
I mean, go back and look at the, the, the preliminaries to this invasion, which they denied was going to happen. It was always, oh, you know, the final showdown will be with NATO. Ukraine, it's, it's a vassal. It's, it's a satrapy. It doesn't, it doesn't count. You know, the people are awaiting their liberation. So what? I mean, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's for domestic consumption. And the extent to which Russians still believe their masters, I don't know. I feel sorry for them if they do. Uh, no doubt there's a good percentage of the population fed a steady diet of state television, nothing else. And they do, you know, they're, and they're rallying around the flag and they think that, um, you know, the West is, is simply lying about what's taking place. However, I'd have to wager at this point that there's a you know, goodly number of people. I mean, again, the people to Putin's right, the ultranationalists, um, you know, the Duganists of, of Russia who think that he's been kittenish and who think that he hasn't committed enough genocide and that he hasn't sent enough rockets raining down on civilian infrastructure in Kyiv. Um, the former commander of the LDNR, uh, Igor Strelkov or Girkin, who's a former not former, really. I mean, there's no such thing, but whatever. Used to be an FSB officer. He's been one of the um, principal Cassandras on Russian social media, saying essentially that this war is already lost and Ukraine has won it uh, because Russia doesn't have the gumption to do what's necessary. Mass mobilization. There was a, a whole set piece on state television yesterday in which one poor sap was up there speaking sensible truths about this, saying, we're going to lose. The Ukrainians will be victorious unless we mobilize and de declare all-out war. And every, he was being shouted down as a a, a, a non-comrade who ought to watch his mouth. Don't you know? Don't don't. How dare you question the czar and his wisdom? So yeah, th I think this is going to lead to cracks in the regime. Um, I spoke to a, an Estonian um, analyst who's been very on song throughout this whole campaign, who said that you know already one begins to see judging by the rules of, of dictatorial governance, that a process of disintegration is happening. I mean, I mentioned earlier the Security Council meeting on Friday. That's a way for, you know, the boss to make everyone complicit in his failure, such that no one can claim they were the outlier speaking truth to power and, and so on. And also, you know, frankly, this is a regime that it really is at, at the upper echelons staffed with jumped up non-entities and mediocrities, with the exception of Nikolai Patrushev, who's more hawkish than Putin, former FSB director of, I think, six years. Um, and, you know, I think he is the chairman of the Security Council. Um, and, you know, he's probably, if I judge him correctly, probably somebody who's been advocating to go, go in more robustly. But he's not getting his way so far. So, you know, look, there have been rumors from the very beginning, you know, a slow motion coup is in the offing. I mean, I've even reported on rumors about Putin's seemingly poor health. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, it's really impossible to do Kremlinology because this is such a tight knit group of people that not a lot of information leaks out uh, that's credible. So we don't know. But we don't really have to know because the current strategy of security assistance escalation in security assistance and giving the Ukrainians the tools they need is working. You know, the metaphysical aspects of this war have always been on Ukraine's side. For them, it's existential. They are the defenders of their homeland. And I mean, it's not even consensus. It's unanimity. 98% want to keep pressing the fight. And and the optimism is, is boundless there. So but just in the last few minutes, uh, Michael, if Petrushev is the most powerful figure outside of 
Putin and and could possibly succeed him. And you've got him and the mill bloggers all furious. And, and this floating the same canard that was floated here in the United States during the Vietnam War, that we're fighting the war with one hand tied behind our back. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? Is it likely that Putin will be forced to accede? And Hadirov, by the way, the Chechen leader, is also saying similar things, that we've, just, you know, we've got to take the gloves off. Yeah. Does that mean that Putin's eventually going to have to listen to them and take the gloves off and f- declare a full war and mobilize and escalate? No, not necessarily. You know, I was having a conversation with, um, with a friend the other day about the, the old concept of mirror imaging from the Cold War whereby American analysts and, and strategic planners ask themselves uh, with respect to what Russia might do, well, what would we do under the same or similar circumstances? And invariably, the answer they came up with was wrong because it doesn't really work that way. Uh, the Russian government, the Russian culture operates under different sets of rules and playbooks. And for Putin, I mean, one thing that that I've noticed about his regime for 20 odd years now is he can essentially push a button and reinvent reality overnight. I mean, you know, he presented himself as the loyalist to the Yeltsin era, um, the dutiful soldier. He was the force for stability. He was the, quote, pragmatist. He was the guy who, who rehabilitated the economy and slowly brought Russia out from, you know, this this morass of dysfunction and, and, and bankruptcy. Then he became the hawk who was pushing back against NATO expansion and saw the dark hand of the State Department and the CIA behind every so-called color revolution. And now he's, you know, the great Russian chauvinist, the, the you know, neo-imperialist who wants to recreate at least chunks of the former Soviet or even before that Russian empire. Um, he can he can change his stripes yet again. I mean, Timothy Snyder had a very good essay a few months ago about the sort of virtual reality dictatorship that he has. So, I mean, I said just a few moments ago, if most Russians still think, you know, the war is going okay, or that, you know, the reason we lost Kharkiv is because of some grand conspiracy, not because of the failure and incompetency and demoralization of our own forces, um, then Putin could easily pull out of Ukraine tomorrow and couch that as a similar, you know, conspiracy that uh, the Russians have to regroup or, you know, take inventory and and fortify the motherland because now it's 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 you know all comers against Moscow and I mean he he can come up with any hymn sheet he likes, and his people he will sell it to them. Now the ultranationalists and the people who think, as I said, that he's been too soft, they're going to bleed and they're going to moan. Uh, are they capable at the moment of fomenting a coup or taking over the regime or doing? I mean, I I don't see any indication that they are, um, you know, uh, who Patrushev is. Do I see Patrushev as somebody who might behead the king and usurp the throne? Not really. I mean, he's been very loyal um, to Putin for a long time. If anything, I could see Putin deciding, well, maybe Patrushev is a problem here because he, he you know, in, in the grand Stalinist kind of mindset of paranoia, you don't just go after your enemies, but you go after your friends as well because they might become your enemies. So I think there are a lot of variables here. Um, and that's not to say, I'm not making any predictions. I'm just saying that, you know, the, the idea that, that okay, because Ukraine succeeds, 
that's when we have to be at the most fearful and worried about what's going to happen in Moscow. I, I think that's a bit of a canard. I've been hearing that for a long time. And, and to my mind, it's, it's only just rationalized not allowing Ukraine to succeed. Well, they've succeeded. And again, the Russians deny defeat. It's, it'd be one thing if they were coming out and saying this was a rout, we failed. We need to now we need to really go to war. But they're not saying that. Right. You know? and but but Russian that. history, though, just in, in the last minute here, Michael, Russian history uh, indicates that in 1905, when they lost the war against Japan, there were repercussions and a, and a revolution. And then later on, of course, during World War One, the failures on the front were such that it helped to bring about the Bolshevik Revolution. So history indicates that defeats, military defeats are not good for the incumbent government. They're not good for the incumbent government, but I mean, there's no predetermined course by which the transformation in, in Moscow has to take place. I mean, the Bolsheviks, they could not come to power democratically. They didn't have the constituency, so they seized power doesn't mean that there's going to be another seizure of power necessarily. There, I mean, I don't know. I, there, there are some analysts and, and people who study Russia and who've been doing so a lot longer than I have who are perhaps counterintuitively or strangely optimistic about the future of Russia. They see that there, there's going to be some dawn of liberalism. I'm a bit skeptical of that myself. Um, but again, you know, in, in a way, Ian, I mean, you know, I think part of the problem that we've all had is trying to view Ukraine through the prism of what will Russia do? In other words, Ukraine always always portrayed or always held in this conceptual framework as the perennial victim and the force that is acted upon. And I, I think we're, we're sitting here, we're, we're even having this conversation now, having talked about you know, the, the recapture of 2,500 square kilometers by the Ukrainian armed forces against what was heralded as the world's second greatest military power and we're still treating Ukraine as though it has acted upon when it is the, the, the actor in, in, in the current circumstances. So, I mean, what happens in Russia, uh, you know, if if some lunatic ultranationalist takes over, then, yeah, I mean, we have to be fearful that somebody like that might launch WMD or engage in some kind of unconventional warfare and perhaps not just against Ukraine, but European targets. But then we're having a totally different conversation because then, you know, Article 5, NATO, collective security comes into play. But with respect to Ukraine, um, you know, and I think I've mentioned this on your show before, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, several months ago said, the US objective is to ensure that Russia cannot wage this kind of uh, aggressive warfare against a neighbor in the, I think he said, the, the, the short to mid-term future. That seems to me a very sensible and, and morally correct strategic policy for the US to have. As of now, I don't think Russia has got the manpower or the resources or the technological capability, thanks to sanctions, to prosecute a war successfully in Ukraine. So where is where is you know this sort of post-Putin Russia 2.0 going to get its new military? Remember, for years the the the, the, the propaganda was that uh, Sergei Shoigu was building Putin this bright shiny new army that was going to mop the floor with everybody. Well, we see the result of that. And we should, I think, be mindful of the fact that, you know, what is printed on Potemkin paper or what gets circulated in Rosaboron export brochures is not the reality. Uh, the Russian soldiers still could not fight the way that we were told they were going to. Um, and look, Ukraine now is in a much stronger position 
than it was on February 23rd. You know, they don't have to join NATO and they're not even talking about it anymore because they are getting a NATO standardized military. And I don't just mean kit, I mean TTPs. You know, the way that they're fighting or they have been fighting in Kharkiv uh, is very indicative. And I had this conversation with a retired U.S. Army colonel yesterday, very indicative of U.S. strategic doctrine cooked up in the 1970s and the 80s, which is you don't hit the first line of defense, you hit several lines in, you take out the rear, uh, and then you essentially, you, you trap the guys on the, the line of contact because you know the, the Russians are not good at, and they've not been good at logistics and supplying the people that they've got on the front line. That yeah, that's been, because of corruption, right? Well, corruption and also their doctrine is fundamentally different from ours. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean, now I'm hearing, oh, we're worried that the Ukrainians have pushed too far in advance that they're going to have issues with supply lines and the rest of it. But that's not, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, the, the Russians had relied in, uh, heavily on rail lines because they simply couldn't move things um, by, you know, vehicle convoys that ran out of fuel, there were problems with maintenance, you know, the, the, the tires were busted, your corruption argument, yeah. But the Ukrainians have seemed to be quite adroit at, at getting stuff to where it needs to go. And now they have, I mean, indeed, in capturing Izium, which is a main uh, railway hub that the Russians had relied on heavily as a kind of operational logistical command center in uh, in the region. And now that, that that's in Kiev's hands again, so. You know, I, I look, I, the, the one constant for me in the last seven months, even before that, is, you know, and, and I, I, I fall prey to this instinct, too, so I'm a little more self-conscious of it and also conscious of it in others. But I think underestimating Ukraine's capacity and not listening to them when they say they can achieve certain things, I mean, it's it's been a kind of Orientalism. I think that the West is, is, is you know, hard-pressed to slough off at long last. But... Time and time again, you know, underestimating them has proven to be folly. And, uh, you know, do I think they can recapture her son? I do. I do. Um, I think even, frankly, Crimea is, is possibly in play at this stage. So, you know, I mean, again, I'm not I'm not predicting things. I'm just saying based on what we what based on the evidence of what they they have achieved, what they can achieve seems a lot greater than what we previously assumed. Well, Michael Weiss, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Sure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss, who's a news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported on rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe, and he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from September the 12th of 2022, and we'll take a brief station break and be back with another Background Briefing from December the 4th of 2022. <laughs>
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're now going to a broadcast from December the 4th of 2022, asking why such a small man as Putin has a disproportionate impact on the world stage. We also assessed President Biden's suggestion that he would enter into peace talks with Putin if the Kremlin had any serious interest in ending the war in Ukraine, to which Putin responded by indicating he'd be willing to talk if the West accepted his preconditions that Russia retain all the Ukrainian territory it has claimed. Moving beyond the devastation of the battlefield as winter grips the seemingly endless conflict, we will look into the man and the myth behind the tragedy Putin is inflicting on the people of Ukraine to try to understand why such a small man has such a disproportionate impact on the world stage. Joining us was Andrew Weiss, Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff and as a policy assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. We discussed his new book, Just Out, Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. And joining us now is Andrew Weiss, Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees the research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff, as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff, and as a policy assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. His new book, Just Out, is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Weiss. It's really great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And just before we talk about the book, what do you make of Biden's recent comment when he was doing a, a press conference at the White House with French President Macron, where he was asked about the war in Ukraine and how to end it? And then he said he was interested, he would be interested in talking with Putin if Putin was serious about ending this war. And to which Putin responded by suggesting that he'd be interested in ending the war, but the West has to accept his preconditions, which are that they have to accept all the territory that he's conquered, even though he's losing some of the territory that he's conquered. So not particularly encouraging. How does it strike you? Um, I think the conversation really has to focus on what's happening on the ground and everything else is details at this point. Um, this is a horrible, brutal war. We're in the ninth month. Um, it was unprovoked. It was trumped up on the most ludicrous of grounds. Um, if you listen to what Putin and his senior members of the Kremlin have to say publicly to justify it, it's all on its face laughable and ludicrous. Um, and their goals are really maximalist. They want to wipe out Ukraine as a sovereign country. They're prepared to brutalize the innocent civilians of Ukraine and they want regime change. Um, so, you know, it's there's no sign that any of that's changed. And we see every day that the tactics the Russian military is using are getting more and more brutal, um, especially as we go into winter. So conversations about ending the war, um, you know, I'm sure everyone would love to see the war over, but 
Um, but that's the reality. The what the Russians are doing is is unconscionable. And if the U.S. president wants to say, hey, if the Russians were serious, they could get out of Ukraine. That would be the immediate, most obvious way to end this war. If they're not willing to do that, which they clearly aren't, um, we should, you know, let this thing go for a little bit longer. To, as to watch the Ukraine, you know, every day we sort of watch the Ukrainian people and their military push, try to push the Russians out. They've been remarkably successful. They've exceeded anybody's expectations. So, you know, that to me seems like the right approach. It's it's unsatisfying to those of us who look at the horribleness of the war every day, but the alternative would be worse. Um, and that's that's really, I think, the, the quandary that, you know, the Western leaders all find themselves in is if you were to say to the Russians, oh, let's have a peace process, let's have a ceasefire, let's let you basically regroup and rebuild and reconstitute your forces, I think you would be, you know, basically just forestalling round two of this. Um, and that's that's why I think, you know, I wouldn't really focus on the back and forth between Joe Biden um, and Vladimir Putin. I'd really focus on what's what's happening on the ground. And in terms of what's happening in Russia, it seems that Putin is moving more and more into the nationalist blood-curdling, bloodthirsty calls for nuclear weapons and all of this other stuff that the nationalists who are given traction on state media are calling for. And in terms of any any countervailing forces, uh, in, if you could use the word liberal side, um, I mean, most of the talented people have left the country. At least a lot of them have, particularly the young people. So is he likely just to move further and further into the embrace of the rabid nationalists? I don't quite see it that way. I think Vladimir Putin has been leading the charge um, and that this war is something that he conjured up out of no, you know, uh, you know, no, no obvious reason um, other than opportunism and his own reading of Russian history and the, uh, you know, for the efforts he's tried to make to pretend that Ukraine's a made up country and has no right to exist and that Russia has this right as an imperial power to dominate its neighbors. Um, to me, that's the, the, the beginning of this whole thing. And, and the noise that comes up on Russian television is, is completely, um, it's fascinating in a lurid kind of way, but it doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't have any political weight. The people who are on Russian television do not make the decisions. They don't set the parameters for what's going to be the government's decisions. Those are you know, really separate and hermetically sealed from one another. And I think because we don't have a lot of good data about what's going on in the Kremlin, like it's a black box decision-making arrangement and they deliberately try to shroud everything they're doing in secrecy, we grasp onto the indicators we do have access to. And that's things like what's going on on Russian television. But I just would, I would really caution you and others from you treating that as an indicator of anything. Like Russia doesn't have a political life at the moment. Like there is no real pluralism. There are no political institutions. And these propaganda arms debating about like who can be the more over the top and who can say the more lurid, blood, you know, thirsty thing. Like it's it's gross. It's grotesque, but it's not an indicator of where where the debate is going and let alone where Putin is going. So, Andrew Weiss, let's talk about your new book just out. Accidentals are the life and lies of Vladimir Putin. It does seem that history tends to judge dictators like Hitler and Stalin and Putin in terms of the lands that they conquer and the millions of bodies that they pile up. But I'm reminded of a 
played by Bertolt Brecht, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Hui, that reduces Hitler down to a minor protection racketeer in the Chicago markets who's in charge of the cauliflower concession. And it seems to me that, to some extent, that's what your new book has done. It's not about this mythical, powerful guy that is supposed to be this genius, but it's about this ordinary guy which leads you to ask the question, how did an ordinary guy like Hitler rise to the top, an ordinary guy like Stalin, who was likewise a a nobody and a thug? What is it about history that repeats these patterns? You know, uh, it's a a hard question. Um, I tend to believe that individuals really matter and their actions um, and their audacity drives a lot of what we call history. I'm not a historian myself, so I'm sure there's, you know, really sophisticated historians of Germany or or the Soviet Union who, you know, can tell you what accounts for how Stalin or Hitler, you know, became such dominant figures. In Putin's case, there's no doubt that he himself was quite cunning. He was underestimated. Um, He was very opportunistic. And he also showed that with great political will, you can force your way. And so pretty early on, I mean, this is part of what was fun about doing this book for me, was trying to think back to what we believed Putin was up to, for example, when I was in the White House in 1999 and 2000, and compare it now to where we ended up. And, you know, did we misread things? Did we misunderstand? And I and a, the book is my effort in part to reckon with the mistakes that I felt I, w- I had made at that time in understanding what motivated Putin. It was, you know, not just making himself Russia's dictator. Um, it had to do with an, a reading, which is a, a understandable reading, which I think I didn't appreciate enough at the time of what kind of government Russia's elites think is best suited for a country this vast um, and that's this unruly. And if you go back in Russian history, and this is one of the key themes of the book, Putin identified himself early on as, in Russian, the term is a gasudarstvenik, which means an advocate of a strong state. And if you think about basically the entire period of Russian history from the 16th century onward, the response of Russia's rulers has been to have a very centralized, very personalistic regime. And that was true in the imperial period. It was true in the Soviet period. It then wasn't true in the 1990s. Like that was the anomaly, the the Yeltsin era. And then Putin reasserted that previous historical pattern very aggressively from pretty much the earliest days of his presidency. And I think that was just the kind of thing that all of us who were swept up in the excitement of the collapse of the Soviet system and the fall of the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera, like didn't really appreciate that history would reassert itself so powerfully. So to focus on that era, that moment in 1999, Putin had been prime minister and he sort of came out of nowhere. He helped apparently the Yeltsin family cover up some corruption. And then, then he headed up they became the first head of the FSB, the successor to the KGB, and then ran for president, conducted a honey trap operation against his opponent who was running against, who was the prosecutor general, who was filmed with a couple of young hookers. And then Putin blew up 
a bunch of apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing about up to 300,000 of his own citizens to get the Russian people aboard his offensive new war in Chechnya, where he talked about taking the Chechens to the outhouse and strangling them. So I've always wondered why, at that point, we didn't recognize who he was. If somebody that's capable of killing their own citizens in such a wanton way is hardly the kind of statesman who you can look into his eyes and see his soul. Well, I mean, you've, you've, you've definitely put together a pretty convincing indictment. And the team that I was part of in the Clinton administration at the end that was dealing with Putin had no illusions about the man and didn't believe for a second that Putin was a reformer. We were quite worried that his rise to power would potentially lead to the unraveling of the fragile democratic institutions and processes that Yeltsin had unleashed. So that was the worry at the beginning. Um, there was a real set of indications that Putin wasn't committed to, for example, protecting his neighbors' sovereignty and territorial integrity. And you know, there's a scene in the book where uh, President Clinton is talking to him about the bullying stance that Putin had endorsed uh, towards Georgia um, in early 2001. So all of those patterns were were pretty clear to us, and that was part of why we wanted to keep the relationship with him sort of at arm's length, and there would be none of this kind of bonhomie and jocular tone that had been dominant during the Yeltsin era, where you had the two presidents, you know, really constantly together and acting like they were best friends. So the tone was was markedly different. The thing that shifted the U.S. relationship with Russia was not the um, the events that you're describing. I think arguably it was 9-11. And there's a great couple scenes in the book where, I don't know if you'll remember this, Ian, but there was, you know, Putin was the first foreign leader to call the White House after the attacks. Um, he pledged uh, support for a joint response. He took a remarkable decision to let the United States open a series of bases in the countries of the former Soviet Union right next door to Afghanistan, which enhanced our ability to uh, defeat the Taliban and go after al-Qaeda. So he did these things that were pretty dramatic, and he was rewarded for all that with lots of FaceTime with President George W. Bush. And he, you know, for one of the things that I had, you know, I think was really sort of, to me, crystallizes all this, is he was allowed to sit in on the CIA's daily briefing for, for President Bush and was given his own copy of the presidential daily briefing book. He autographed it and gave it back to the CIA briefers at the end of the briefing. It's unthinkable, obviously, in today's world that Putin would have any such relationship with the U.S. president. Um, but Putin had his own, and this this you know comes back to the opportunism that I mentioned earlier, which is a key theme throughout the book. Putin had his own reason for seeming like he was America's ally. He wanted us to get off his back about the unraveling of the democratic institutions like free media and the pressure on Russia's business tycoons. And he wanted a blank check to pursue the war in Chechnya and to kind of create equivalence between what he was doing in Chechnya with what the U.S. was doing to deal with transnational terrorism. But in terms of Putin's meteoric rise, who was backing him? Because it's always seemed to me that the KGB ran the country behind the scenes, uh, particularly during the, the period of stagnation under Brezhnev, where Andropov was basically running the show. 
and of course he finally became the general secretary of the Communist Party, but by that time he was pretty frail and didn't last that long. Is there something there about the idea he went from the FSB to the the presidency? Were they backing him? In other words, there was just as there was a brief period under Yeltsin of a sort of chaotic democracy, there was a brief period where the intelligence services were unmasked a little bit, but they've come back. So were they pushing him? Are they also a part of this story? You know, I think it's it's you're you're overstating it a little bit. The the KGB was not um, the dominant force that you're suggesting in the Soviet era. They were a state within a state, which is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. They were subject to control and oversight by the Communist Party and the Central Committee and the Politburo. Um, and a lot of the reading of Putin's rise has tended to emphasize how, you know, the KGB sort of uh, deep selected Putin, you know, decades in advance and then sort of, you know, used him to be the battering ram to to formally take over control of the state. And it was a little more complicated than that. Um, and I think that what happened, and this is part of what's so weird about writing a book like this is the influence of pop culture and how, you know, we sort of think of the KGB and these kind of, you know, uh, with all the mystique and all the, the, you know, ways the Russians want us to think about it. Um, Putin himself, part of the reason he became a, uh, a KGB officer in the first place was he was caught up in all this, uh, pop culture stuff that he, uh, loved when he was a teenager in the 1960s. Um, and then this is the funny part, which I tell in the book, is the Yeltsin family, when they were looking and casting about for a successor to Boris Yeltsin because he was largely incapacitated because he was such a, a heavy drinker, um, they went around and did these focus groups. And when they did the focus groups asking average Russians, like, what kind of qualities do you want in a leader? The thing that the Russian respondents in these focus groups pointed to was we want this George Clooney type guy. We want this guy that we all watched on TV who was in a big, very popular miniseries in the 1970s, um, who's like Colonel Sturlitz. And Colonel Sturlitz was played by one of the grand leading men of the Soviet cinema, um, who was a wonderful character actor named Vyacheslav Tikhonov. So from the earliest days, they basically were casting around looking for somebody from the security services to play act the role of this 1970s miniseries hero. And they tried to mold Putin in the image of such a person. And Putin was not that guy. He was a, you know, soft-spoken person, small stature, not glamorous, not noticeably handsome. Um, but they dressed it up as if he was, you know, the Russian version of George Clooney. And they put him in sailor suits and they had him ride around in jet fighters. And they had him play act the tough guy role. And it was, I think, remarkably successful. The Russian people all fell for it and bought it, um, particularly low information uh, Russian citizens. Um, But ultimately in the West, I think we over time, you know, saw this image all the time and sort of also took it at face value. And the book is a big part of kind of peeling back a lot of those deliberate, you know, attempts on the Russian side to, you know, foster an image of Putin that's just not borne out. But at some point, you know, the reality does start to resemble the the facade. And I think we're very much living in that period of where the 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 kind of, you know, boss of bosses, 
macho guy without a shirt on, all that stuff has infected Putin's sense of his own invulnerability. And that's led to lots of overreach and miscalculations. And the Ukraine war is, you know, the most prominent example of that. Well, his tenure in the KGB was pretty undistinguished, wasn't it? Uh, In the backwater Dresden and apparently his first chief of staff, Sergei Ivanov, who was a KGB general, made the mistake of reminding Putin that he was a general (laughs) and Putin was a lieutenant colonel. And he he was... fired, I take it. So I, I'd i be interested in, in getting your take on the kind of Glavny Protivnik mindset of, of Putin. That how much is he shaped by this KGB notion of the main enemy, the United States? You know, I think it's complicated because, you know, Putin has gone through these different phases and his behavior has not been, I'm the hard-edged Die in the died in the wool opponent of the United States. And so, you know, using the 9-11 example, he did things. It's not just a question of rhetoric. He did open the door for an open-ended U.S. military presence in his backyard, which is, you know, about as, uh, you know, as, at least when you look at the justifications Russia's making for the war in Ukraine, that's what they claim they're worried about. But in the case of 9-11, he was willing to do things that flew in the face of all basic understanding of what Russia's foreign policy is grounded in. Um, he at times has wanted things out of the United States and he's been willing to swallow and accept moves the United States has made in Republican and Democratic administrations. And basically just, you know, take NATO enlargement. He just rolled over for a couple of the previous rounds of NATO enlargement, including NATO's entry into the Baltic states, um, as if it was not a big deal. And it to me suggests that the you know, there was nothing completely foreordained about where we ended up. What made the war in Ukraine, and this is a big part of the book as well, so to me, the most fateful decision Putin made, and it really started in 2014, is a fear of U.S.-led popular uprisings. And in Putin's mind, dating back to his time in the KGB, where he was in East Germany in 1989, when the wharf came down, all through the past 20 plus years, he has seen events where, like in Ukraine, where the people rise up and kick out an unpopular leader or resist attacks uh, on their dignity, like in the Arab Spring. His reading of all this stuff is that it's a secret case, sort of CIA plot and that the CIA, at the direction of the U.S. deep state, organizes these kinds of uprisings. And we use American NGOs or we use tech companies like Google and we basically throw our weight around in the world through this tool. And the Russians call it a color revolution. And the Chinese have adopted in the wake of the way the Russians talk about this similar phrasing and similar framing of the issue. Um, And you saw this even in the response to the protests recently across China in the last 10 days. They, They talk about color revolutions all the time. So to me, that's really what's been driving a lot of the, the paranoia and the fear and drove this fateful decision in 2014 to start the war in Ukraine was a sense that the U.S. is doing this. The U.S. is you know, pushing out a government that's friendly to Russia. And the next step after they succeed in Ukraine is they're coming for us. And so we've got to do things to throw the U.S. off balance and to make sure that nothing like this can happen inside Russia itself. Well, obviously, he was freaked out by the Euromaidan, but his his version of history, the idea that a bunch of Nazis attacked the palace 
where his guy Yanukovych was in there. By the way, Manafort was standing right beside him as Yanukovych was uh, ordering his palace guard to shoot the demonstrators. So is there any kind of link there, not a physical or a political link, but any kind of historical irony here that we ended up here with a bunch of American Nazis attacking our palace, our citadel of democracy, the capital, because there's been so much out there about, for the longest time, about Putin's ties to, and Russia's ties previous to Putin, back to Trump, who made his first visit to Moscow on July the 4th of 1987. I'm just curious to get a sense of how much Putin's active measures involved Trump. Yeah, I, the story that, and it's, I think it's really relevant right now, given the way the American political system is responding to uh, the meeting between former President Trump and Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, um, and the fact that, you know, you just see our, you know, particularly with the changes at Twitter, all the kind of dark corners of American political life are now really very visible and, you know, themes of anti-Semitism and intolerance towards LGBTQ people, all this stuff is just at us. And, and, you know, it's like a, we've gone back into a, a you know, a, a, a typhoon or something. It's important to remember how this, some of this got started with the Russians. And again, all of these problems are largely our homegrown, you know, uh, just, you know, this is, this is not some external thing that the Russians created and uh, imposed on us, but the Russians certainly have amplified it or tried to exploit it as best they can. But what started, and this is, you know, it's a theme that runs throughout the book, is in 2011, 2012, where there were these unexpected street demonstrations in Moscow. And the chief beneficiaries of the Putin regime came out on the streets and said, we don't like rigged elections. We don't want you back in the Kremlin, Mr. Putin. We don't want to be subjects. We want to be citizens. And, you know, basically stop assaulting our dignity. And the immediate response that the Kremlin initiated to push back against this was to say, you're all American proxies. George Soros and the State Department are paying you to say these things. And anyone who supports the ideas that you're embracing is un-Russian. And so, for example, the Pussy Riot case became one of the ways the Kremlin very vividly said, look, these people defile the most, you know, important uh, of the Russian Orthodox cathedrals in Moscow. They're, you know, they're, they're not Russian. They're, 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 they're disgusting and they're hostile to our way of life. And at the time, Putin, you know, coming back to like the idea of artifice, he just put on this artificial cloak of I'm a moral conservative. I'm standing up against LGBTQ people. I, you know, I support the family. I support the church. And it was it was largely fraudulent what he was doing. But certain members of the American uh, moral conservative and GOP sort of movement, uh, you know, activist community like the Tea Party um, saw what Putin was doing and thought, huh, this is a guy who, you know, is kind of on our, our wavelength and he's a strong man and we like tough guys. And so people like Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, the evangelical uh, uh, church leader, you know, went to Moscow and embraced his anti-LGBT policies. Um, racist uh, former member of Congress, Steve King from Iowa, went to Moscow and embraced Putin. And over time, as the war in Ukraine got going, the Russians were really worried that the Western pressure campaign could be really bad for them. And so they sought as best they could to foment political tensions inside 
leading Western nations, the US, the UK, Germany, and France. And the main tool that they had at the time for doing this was to amplify the voices of populist and nationalist groups. And so, you know, Trump, Tea Party, uh, Marine Le Pen's National Front, the German uh, far right and far left, the Brexit advocates, all of these groups benefited or at least played footsie with the Russians during this period. And I don't think at any point the Russians, and the, the book really goes into this in a lot of detail, expected things would pay off so handsomely. Um, but, you know, it was like it was like the greatest intelligence coup in their history. I mean, they 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 way outperformed. What, right. Well, the, uh, what was it, a nine million, the nine million pounds investment through a British uh, insurance guy uh, that apparently came from the FSB was the biggest donation to Brexit. I mean, awfully cheap investment for the political paralysis of an important NATO member that's been paralyzed since Brexit and still is to this day. They still can't get out from under it. It's exactly. extraordinary. Yeah. But, and I mean, the, the comparison I draw in the book, and there's a funny little picture in the book, is to the people using box cutters to hijack planes on 9-11. I mean, these are very cost-effective tools. They're asymmetric in their impact. They're deniable. The Russians can say, oh, we didn't do any of this. It was just some, you know, troll factory who did it. You know, it wasn't us. Um, and you're letting us, you know, stew in our own juice. And that's the case very much today with watching the U.S. political system. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're unfortunately we're not out of the woods um, in terms of our own polarization. And the Russians benefit from that. But how much does Putin exploit these fissures? I mean, he probably, like everybody else, thought Hillary would win, even though he was clearly supporting Trump and we don't know the full story. The Mueller report, nobody's ever read it from as far as I can tell. But it, clearly he was out to help Trump. But had Hillary won, I'm sure Putin's plan B would be that Trump would go around the country for four years leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up to diminish her ability to govern. So you mentioned that Nick Fuentes, the fact that he was at this Thanksgiving dinner with Kanye West and Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and all the reporting about him being a, a Holocaust denier misses the fact that he's one of the biggest cheerleaders for Putin out there. And when he had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar on stage with him, he led a chant with the audience, Putin, 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 Putin. So there is a pro-Putin caucus on the right in the House. And of course, the Marjorie Taylor Greene's caucus, the vestiges of the Tea Party, seem to have an inordinate influence and maybe even uh, will decide who the speaker is in the next Congress. What kind of mischief can the pro-Putin caucus get up to? Because I'm sure there's a confluence of interest between uh, Putin uh, wanting to get the House to cut funds to uh, Ukraine, which in the state media, they were over the moon about the possibility of a red wave, the consequences of which would be that the Repub first thing that McCarthy would do would be cut funds, cut U.S. funds to Ukraine. So is there a continuing active measures campaign on there? And why do we have this pro-Putin caucus or can't we expose it? So I hear you, Ian. And yes, some of these people say things that are really toxic. And I, you know, I lament that. But if you look at Fox News, which is, you know, the most popular television network in the U.S., and you look at its most popular hosts, they say these things all the time. And their megaphone is 
orders of magnitude bigger than Nick Fuentes or Marjorie Taylor Greene's megaphone. So having Tucker Carlson every night beating the drums about why Ukraine, you know, isn't really a friend of the United States and he's rooting for Putin. And I mean, he says all these things. To me, that's much more consequential. Um, I don't quite understand, and I, I'm, I'm not pretending to be naive here. I honestly do not understand what's in it for Fox News uh, leading personalities to talk like this. Like it's it flies in the face of, you know, core tenets of what the Republican Party has stood for for decades. Um, and so is it just to embarrass Joe Biden and they would be you know willing to, you know, embrace anybody or is it something more uh, more complicated? It's it's mysterious to me. Um, and it's not just a question of what people on the fringes are saying. It does look like the you know leadership of the Republican Party and the the Congress is not ensnared by a lot of this talk. And you will, you know, as we will get a good test of this during the lame duck, when the president's request for additional aid for Ukraine go forward. And it seems right now that the Republicans are likely to add to things, not take away. And when Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, the Republican uh, leader in the House, started to talk about scaling back aid for Ukraine and he used these phrasings like no blank check, you know, he was pretty quickly shot down by uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, so there is something going on where the Republican Party isn't fully unified on these issues. There's a lot of differing views. Um, I'd be surprised if they are going to uh, cut and run um, from supporting Ukraine. Um, it's probably going to get harder to push some of this aid stuff through the Congress, but I, I kind of don't think it's going to fall apart. I, the last thing I'd say is I think the Russians are still not any great shakes at understanding U.S. politics, and they make these sort of flamboyant uh, gestures of like, oh, if only you know the Republicans win in the midterms, this other problem will be less intense for us, like U.S. military support for Ukraine. So they pin a lot of hopes on stuff that doesn't materialize. But the one thing that they were definitely pinning their hopes on and I hope everyone is going to pay attention to is they want Donald Trump back in the White House in 2025, because that would be the single biggest uh, course correction that they could bank on for a change in U.S. policy towards Ukraine. Well, just in closing, if Fox News is the major cheerleader or the, the most influential, useful idiot for the Russians, it's extraordinary because I, a friend of mine was high up in Murdoch's organization and he told me when Murdoch came back from meeting with Putin over a decade or so ago, maybe longer, but he said, "How? what do you think of Putin? And Murdoch said, he's a bloody gangster. So, And Murdoch now seems to be backing uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. So does that mean that people like Tucker Carlson, uh, it's almost like Frankenstein's monster, they can't control it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on U.S. politics, so, you know, right. you can tell me more about Australian politics, you know, and Murdoch's <laughs> role. Um, I'm sure I could learn a lot about it. I assume a lot of this is about money. Um, some of it's about ideology. But, I, you know, I, I'm really, I'm the Russian nerd. I, you know, I'm just sure. playing. Well, I'm glad that we spoke, though. You've filled us in. And, and by the way, the book is a graphic novel, and the work of Brian Box Brown is so amazing with that kind of socialist realism style. It's brilliant. So I re highly recommend the book, and I thank you for joining us, uh, Andrew Weiss. No, thank you, Ian. It was great to be here. Really enjoyed myself. 
And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Weiss, who's the Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. He previously served as the Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff as a member of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff and as a Policy Assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of President Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. And his new book just out is Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half